welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us today, and hopefully my vocal quality is better than it's been for a while. And the reason is, is we're trying out a new podcasting platform called Zencaster. As a, a kind of veterans of the show know, veteran listeners of the show know, many times we've had to use Zoom because we're actually not in the same town anymore. <laughs> but anyway, we're trying out something new, and, and uh, supposedly... Uh, the vocal quality is going to be better, so hopefully that's right. Well, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor. I've been an academic. I've, I've taught philosophy at the college level, and uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I serve a church in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, anyway, I've also got a book coming out on Bombadil, Tom Bombadil, and that should be out any day. I'm at breathlessly anticipating its arrival. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, Tom, tell us about yourself. Tom Price, a uh, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at a variety of places. I live in the Atlantic Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny that we don't, we don't refer said. to the... Yes. <laughs> we, yeah, we don't, we don't refer to the ocean when we're talking about uh, uh, New England and environs, right? That's right. <laughs> and Glenn, Glenn shares that with me at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, for the moment, for the moment. I am Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I've got my own ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. Yeah, Glenn, you've been on the road a bit, too, with Every Square Inch. I saw that, were you uh, in in uh, Michigan? Did I have that right? Yeah, I did a uh, two-day webinar, or two, well, it was recorded and live-streamed as well on uh, critical theory in St. Joseph, Michigan. Nice, nice. Well, anyway, it's, it's, it's your show today, Glenn, so you just go ahead and take it from here. Why don't you introduce the subject of the day? Okay. Uh, the subject actually comes from one of our listeners who submitted it through the Grumblers, which is the uh, Facebook page uh, for discussion of the podcast. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware of this, a group of pugs is called a grumble. So uh, the grumblers. Uh, so Mina Roller sent us an article um, by Joshua Wren called More Than a Matter of Taste, The Danger of Relegating Beauty to the Trivial Pursuit of Pleasure. And I'm not going to, I'll, I'll read a few excerpts from it uh, as we go along. But the core idea here is that working through um ideas about aesthetics. Um, well, first of all, aesthetics. Aesthetics is a branch of philosophy that deals with uh, the question of beauty and taste. And in the modern world, we've got this idea that all beauty is a matter of taste. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, now, there are a number of people who have got uh, real questions about that. Um, and this article cites uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, who, um, as they put it, beauty adheres to the objective, to the object as a quality, independently of whether someone understands it, reacts appropriately to it, or enjoys it. So, in other words, he's arguing that beauty is something that's subjective. Related to that, to that very thing, Glenn, isn't it fascinating that uh, when when we talk to mathematicians, uh, when they would talk about uh, their work, they often refer to. Uh, you know, a sort of criterion that they used to, to sort of determine whether or not they're on the right track is uh, whether or not it's, it's their, their equations are aesthetically beautiful. If they, if they aren't, 
then it's an indicator mm-hmm. that maybe that, that, that they're not actually describing reality and just doing some funky funky math about things that don't actually exist. But when things do exist that they're trying to describe mathematically, it, it, there's kind of a beauty inherent in the equations that they develop. Yeah, I've heard that described as elegance, right? which is, I think, basically the same kind of idea that there, there is um, – um, there's a, well, as you say, an aesthetic quality to it that, that um, for people who understand math uh, has a kind of beauty about it. Now, the way I've always sort of explained this to people is, I, you know, I've told people, uh, you know, if you've got a, a really spectacular sunset out there, I know people who can look at it and say, yeah, it's nice. I know other people who can swoon over it. I know other people who just sort of glance at it and ignore it. I don't know anybody who'd look at it and say, yuck. Right. And that suggests to me just by itself that there's something objectively beautiful there that we we recognize. It isn't just a matter of taste. We recognize something there, even if we don't respond to it, as, as Von Hildebrand is saying, even if we don't respond to it, it's still there. It is still objectively real. Right. And uh, Hildebrand goes on to note that uh, against Hume, Hildebrand expounds beauty as, quote, something important in itself, not something that is satisfying only to me. If this is the case, an appropriate response ought to be made to that which is valuable. So beauty is valuable, and therefore we should respond to it appropriately. And Hildebrand goes on to say that Failure to respond appropriately to something that is objectively good, objectively valuable, is a moral failing. Now, is uh, is, is is was it uh, von Hildebrand who who uh, st- stated that he knew the Nazis were wrong because they were so ugly? Is, is that ring a bell? Yeah, um, I don't know that particular quote, and it's not mentioned in the article here. So, uh, it, that, but that sounds like what some. Given what he has to say about aesthetics, that I think is a would be a valid comment. I should also note that, as far as I'm concerned, it applies to wokeness. Uh, wokeness really reduces all the world to a drab, colorless um, thing. Uh, humor is virtually destroyed, except if it's nasty. Um, there and there's really little space for anything that is is beautiful. It just becomes drab. It becomes colorless. Right, right. And I and I um, I, I don't quite know where that little hand is on. <laughs> if, you, if, if you look if you look at the bottom of the screen there, Tom, and you see your name, you'll see a little. You'll see a, a video thing. You see a microphone, and then yeah. you'll see a hand or something that's supposed to. Ah, there it is. Hand. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I'll try to behave myself and, and use that. Um, but in the, in the meantime, um, yeah. Well, hold, one of the- hold it, hold it, Tom. I'm, I'm going to talk over you here. Why should we start now? We've been doing this for two years. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I can. Uh, yeah. In, inter- I can interrupt less if I have to find that hand thing. <laughs> um, so, so with that freedom, um, um, what, a, a, f- a few things that here is. I mean, I think I, I think what uh, what is being uh, glimpsed at is something that um, you know the, the West historically emphasized in Christian theology in its own way is that that beauty is 
it isn't arbitrary, of course. It's it's grounded in in the transcendent. Um, in philosophy, we talk about the transcendentals. In Christianity, we talk about it in terms of the being of God, in which truth, beauty, and goodness are in, in the nature of God, um, the, and it changes the nature of how we conceive of the infinite. Infinite beauty um, right. is the very nature of God, and th- this brings in something very different. But one of the things that it does is it grounds, of course, that relationship between truth, beauty, and goodness to where... The, the, there is a there is a truth there's there's a connection of course between beauty and truth um but there are aspects of truth that reveal very ugly things that's why the goodness side of it is also a part of that that triad in the sense that that goodness is not merely about exposing the truth of things that um are evil and sinful in the world but it's also about reorienting things towards what their original intentions are and their ultimate purpose are. So, so ugliness is a disruption of that, that fullness of being. Um, and, and then anything that starts to turn in on itself in such a way that it, it moves away from what's at the heart of truth, beauty, and goodness, which is, which is self-giving love, um, that already starts to um, disrupt that vision that we had been handed from from you know the previous generations in theology and philosophy. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I just at a kind of practical level, and this is be something I think that our folks will relate to. For one thing, if beauty is not objectively uh, you know noble, then the statement "God is beautiful" is nonsense. All you're saying when you say "God is beautiful" is just that. Uh, my tastes, uh, you know, find the idea of God appealing or something like that. But I think also another thing that's interesting to note is that, at least in my experience, there are people I have known who are who are uh, really marvelously good people, but they're physically not very attractive. Nevertheless, their moral goodness makes them beautiful in a way. In other words, they're 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 attractive. They draw you. They draw, you know, you toward them uh, just because of their moral goodness. And that moral goodness seems to have a kind of character that spills over even into their, into their, you know, their faces. You know, you, you find their faces appealing. There's something about how it's reflected in the face, even though a person may not be technically or uh, might not be, uh, you know, a, a uh, you know, a, a candidate for a, uh, you know, a swimsuit commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Never, nevertheless, you look at you can look at a person and say, because I know that person and just you know I, I like that person so much, uh, that person is appealing to me, uh, attractive to me at some level, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would also add that um, when we look at the transcendentals and recognize that they're grounded in God Himself, one of the things that I've been thinking about a bit lately is that all beauty, wherever you find it must therefore be a reflection of God. Um, right. And if if you read through, I just, um, driving back from Michigan yesterday, we listened to Paralandra. Um, and when you get to the end, you have this rather odd, almost hymn that takes place um, before Ransom returns to Earth on Paralandra, where all the different parts of creation talk about how they are all the center and and so on. 
And in a lot of ways, I think that's that's sort of an expression of this idea that no that no matter where whatever you find, wherever you find it, um, unfall anything that is unfallen in this world is in a sense a reflection of God Himself who created it. And right, and and I, and I think that connected w- with that is um, kind of two points. On the one hand, it points to the fact that because beauty is transcendent, that means it's valuable in and of itself. And so to pursue it isn't about first and foremost what I get out of it, even though I will get transcendently rich, infinite amounts of goodness from it and beauty from it. Um, so, yes, there is a joy and completion in knowing beauty. I mean, we, we get I think everyone can get a sense of how that can can undo us and then reorient us. Um, and um, But it is something that is pursued for its own sake. And because of that, it when it actually refracts in the creation, um, you also get something that isn't first and foremost utilitarian and isn't something that is about pragmatics, even though it can impact and form those in, in manifold ways. And so you get something of that tran- a form or an imprint of the transcendent in in the creaturely. And I mean, I, I think Roger Scruton used to talk about the way in which compare the beautiful cathedrals that have stood as monuments generation after generation. They were aimed at the beautiful itself and the glory of God, and they they have something transcendent and lasting. And then he kind of compares it with the crass kind of. Uh, commercial music that's just geared towards immediacy and gratification of one particular appetite. Um, and he talks about how transitory it is. He says, look at the buildings, for example, that, that, that we build today. Um, they're torn down in 10 and 15 years. They're ugly. They're hideous. They're outdated. They lose everything. And they had a practical function. Um, and, and of course, we have to use certain things for that, but they had nothing else. And so therefore, they become, you know, just merely space for, for, for more novelty. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things about that, Tom, though, is that there are people who, who cannot recognize beauty uh, or maybe even find it distasteful. And in the history, I uh, know in classical philosophy anyway, uh, that was an indicator that you're, you're, you're sick. That you're something something about your moral constitution isn't right. So, for example, let me give you an example. So today I'm wearing a Krispy Kreme T-shirt. <laughs> Krispy Kreme. Now there are a few things more beautiful than a Krispy Kreme glazed donut. But if I were sick, physically ill, and I saw a Krispy Kreme donut, I would not find it appealing. In other words, uh, the the fact that I don't see the beauty. The, this, the, the marvelous symmetry of the, of the Krispy Kreme donut, the appeal of its crusty outer layer of sugar. <laughs> if the fact that I don't recognize that and salivate says something about, the, you know, my, my health, you, you get, if you get my butt point. <laughs> so, for example, I, I, I remember I, spoke, I was speaking with an intellectual about these sorts of things a few years back, and uh, he showed me a photograph of some art uh, in which uh, somebody had, uh, at great expense, created a mural of a dog urinating on the on the very building that it was depicted on, and I and I recoiled. I, I, I said, "That's an ugly 
uh, image, and that's an ugly uh, thing. And he laughed. He thought there was there was no moral content at all. He just thought this was an amusing amusing thing. I actually, be perfectly frank, thought it was an indicator that his moral constitution had been somehow, uh, you know, malformed. To, to continue with the article, this really picks up on some of those ideas. Hildebrand's contention has far-reaching implications for a whole sphere of human life that is often dismissed as inconsequential because, quote, if no response whatever is given because the human person remains totally obtuse, even in the face of something morally or aesthetically affecting, he is the bearer of an, quote, objective disharmony. On the other hand, if someone were to be, quote, filled with enthusiasm over kitsch, he too would be wrong as, quote, a response of rejection ought to be given to that, which is disvalue. So um, I think that that your, your dog urinating on the building would kind of fall into that second category. Um, and uh, von Hildebrand would probably approve of your reaction because he would say this is, in fact, something of disvalue, which should be disvalued. Right. Well, one way to think about that would be to say, you know, kind of apply maybe a Kantian argument. Do we want to make a universal law that every building should have a dog, a picture of a dog urinating on it? <laughs> well, it, it's and it's it's interesting because the the um, the way in which I mean, classic Christianity kind of um, really generated a very rich conception of aesthetics a lot of people don't recognize that but how it how, how it took over the kind of the uh, greek world greco-roman worlds um thought about it and, and brought it up into a new conception of the infinite grounded in in trinitarian love is phenomenal that's worth a show a few shows actually i think it was um, theologians like, well, the, the Catholic um, von Balthasar was very instrumental in kind of recapturing this. Uh, Dave Bentley Hart's uh, great book, uh, The Beauty of the Infinite, was another. Really capturing the fact that, I mean, with, with the conception of God as a free creator, actually, as we talked about last week, poiesis only properly applies to God. Um, because God is the one who is is free and, f and free from the necessity to create, and therefore it is a genuine giving, uh, a fullness of expression of all that God is to the creation. And yet, the the proper response to the creation is sort of the openness to this glory. It's it's what some theologians call will be the theophanic, the way in which the creation itself is open to God's glory in it, in its original state. And by doing that, it receives this gift of, uh, of, of life and flourishing um, and perfection, which is where that moral aim is. And so one of the things we talked about is the way that form, the gen what is given to us in Genesis and, and, and protected through the giving of the law and brought to its, its first, uh, its, its, its redemption in Christ and renewal. This has an aesthetic beauty character to it, the beauty of holiness, if you will. Um, and, and this is, I think, what's connecting what Chris is talking about, the way in which a, a properly oriented moral life and the beautiful um, become so integrated. Um, and so then when you have a culture that, that it celebrates in the dismantling of those forms given in creation or, or the, the thinking they're going to transcend and become like gods by throwing off that gift of form. Um, and I think you see this. I think some of the West, what you see is they want to 
it's what uh, I think Carl Truman was talking about reef uh, reefs work with uh, de- death works, right? The way in which you 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 think you're going to transcend all this limit on your own poiesis by somehow um, making ugly those forms that have held you back and making them distasteful. So for them, they see it almost as a moral act, right? Uh, uh, making ugly that which kind of made li- put limits on us, and so it's a it's a perverse aesthetic, if you want, or or you know. It's, it's ugliness trying to be a morality. Yeah. I think that, that, that there, you know, this is one of the things about art, you know, that, that philosophically has changed, that art is now intended to do nothing more than shock. Um, yeah. It's really more or less what it's about. It's not designed to display beauty. I mean, the very idea in modern art of beauty is more or less rejected, that there is any sort of concept of that. And if you yeah. paint something that's beautiful, um, it's looked down upon as, sell- as selling out, um, yeah, I, commercial, whatever. Yeah, um, I've got, a, I've got a, a guy that I know that went to uh, UConn, uh, actually was a graduate of UConn in, in the visual arts, and quite gifted and uh, was accepted at Goldsmiths in London. And he spent uh, his entire education at Goldsmiths in London defending beauty against his, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. against his, the detractors who were all his, uh, you know, all the guys on the faculty. And these were all Marxist. And they, they all, uh, you know, maintained that beauty, obviously, is just a social construct. And it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, you know, an imposition on the part of... Uh, particularly men, and they would talk about, you know, the patriarchy, obviously. Whenever anybody says the patriarchy, I just immediately, you know, turn them off. <laughs> but but the, the idea is that, the, the you know, somehow... Except the other podcast. <laughs> that's, right, that's, right, that's right, that's right. But, uh, but you know, the idea is that somehow, you know, we, we white guys have imposed our... Um, our notions of the beautiful upon the rest of the, of the human race. And, uh, and, and in so doing, we've, uh, you know, harmed them, uh, and harmed the world even, uh, it's, uh, but at the same time, uh, what that means getting back to our discussion of, of, you know, mimesis and poesis is that, uh, artists today don't really have to develop any skills because skill uh, corresponds to form, in other words, your ability to represent or represent form, or at least your own ideas, in a way that actually actually reflects those ideas and communicates to others, you know, what you're talking about, or, or what you want them to see. In the case of the visual arts, anyway, go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, well, I was going to say there, there there's another way in which um, in which we lose aesthetics. It, it's not just sort of in art. You know where we, uh, you know we we push the shocking or the ugly or the you know the disruptive. Um, it's not simply in embracing kitsch and stuff that doesn't have value, or for that matter, you know not just kitsch, but I would argue that there's a lot of music out there that is just objectively ugly. Right. Um, I heard a thrash metal version of Amazing Grace once. <laughs> um, which, Uh, well yeah we we won't go there um the the other way that it happens is i'm going to tell you a story that i'm borrowing from my wife who was a wildlife management major in college 
And she had to take all kinds of classes, duck classes, tree classes, all kinds of things like that. And in one of her tree classes, she's sitting right next to me, so I better get this right. Uh, in, in, in one of her tree classes, she said that um, she loves beech trees. Beech trees are just, they, they are really just beautiful trees. I agree. Uh, I think beeches inspired the Malorns. Yeah, in, uh, yeah. Tolkien's world. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she was. She commented on how much she liked beech trees, and the TA who was teaching the class just looked at her and said, "They're worthless. Hmm. They make lousy lumber. There's nothing you can do with them." Hmm. So he was not. You know what happened? What, what that to me really represents is sort of a a utilitarian or a consumerist um, vision of the world where things have value and are seen as good to the degree that they're utilitarian, to the degree that they appeal to something which can be uh, quantified and commercialized. Right. Rather than just for the sake of the fact that this is a beautiful tree. You know, I can imagine one of these guys walking into a virgin forest and thinking of all of the lumber he could get rather than appreciating the beauty of the forest. Yeah, who is it? Uh, Wendell Berry talks about that frame of mind, particularly related to forest. But beech trees, you know, um, this guy, you know, uh, has got a narrow range when it comes to what he thinks about. Uh, beech trees are also uh, the species of tree that uh, produces what's known uh, as ironwood. Ironwood is uh, so tough, so resilient, so strong that, um, you know, it's, very, it's, it's harder than, than oak, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that that, that came from beaches. Yeah. <laughs> so now to to take this one step further, um, th th this is where things, frankly, get you know, kind of get my goat really badly. Um, the Tolkien Society. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, uh, actually, let me, <laughs> let me before we get there, let me just read uh, a little more from this original article. This is from Alistair McIntyre, and he's re referencing um, James's novel. Uh, I'm blanking out on the title. Um, anyway, one of James's novels. Uh, <laughs> in After Virtue, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre describes the milieu of James's novel as one quote, in which the manipulative mode of moral instrumentalism has triumphed. Here we are treated to an extended portrait of the condition of those who see in the social world nothing but a meeting place for individual wills, each with its own set of attitudes and preferences, and who understand that world solely as an arena for the achievement of their own satisfaction, who interpret reality as a series of opportunities for their enjoyment, and for whom the last enemy is boredom. Now, in the course of uh, the novel, which is called Portrait of a Lady, a really difficult yeah. title, um, <laughs> um, James has a guy who is um, an art collector. Uh, he's supposed to have a fabulous taste in art and all of that. And there, the, the lady in question is a woman whom he views as simply another piece of art to collect. Hmm. Right. Basically, is where this goes. Um, now, the thing that interested me about McIntyre's um, quote is that he points out 
that for, you know, he puts it in the social context. I'd like to broaden it to the aesthetic context where it, it views the world, the aesthetic world, um, as nothing more but uh, a meeting place with it, uh, where each person has their own set of attitudes and preferences and who understand that world solely as an arena for the achievement of their own satisfaction. Um, I'd like to extend that a little bit further to people who look at the world exclusively through a lens that is based on their own concepts of their identity and want to push things in a particular political or social direction that justifies their lifestyle decisions. Yeah, that's good. Before we jump there and, and sort of elaborate on that, I just want to say quickly in passing that that this uh, quote from McIntyre reminds me of either or, which is, you know, Senior Kierkegaard's book where he talks about different modes of life and and the fact that they're irreconcilable and you've got to make a choice. That's the idea behind either or. But, you know, he would write uh, pseudonymously, you know, and through pen names and, and he often would play, you know, different roles even in his, uh, in his books. So in either or there's the aesthete uh, or just a, and then yeah. there is Judge William. I don't know if you remember that, uh, the, you know, yeah. that, that sort of, the, so uh, the, what, what you see with the aesthete is when aesthetics are divorced from the ethical, uh, there, there is what you have with, uh, you know, McIntyre's observation. There's a kind of uh, sort of devolution to the point of boredom. So the problem that the, that the aesthete who divorces aesthetics from truth and goodness faces is that uh, it, it just becomes a, a matter of titillation, you know, and sort of keeping yourself from, uh, from ennui and, and kind of – so you have to become more and more arbitrary, more and more extreme. I think that's a, kind of what we see uh, even when it comes to uh, sexual appetite. I think that one of the things that concerns me about, say, things like pornography – or just our complete immersion in the world of the sensual in our in our time is we we it, it forces us to kind of go to further and further extremes to arouse ourselves, uh, and that's where you get these sort of monsters uh, I think emerging like a Ted Bundy and and others, uh, maybe you know he's a he's a particularly extreme example, but I do think that that that's also the problem that we we see with with the use of pornography and and how it's uh, sort of undermining the virility of young men. Because they can no longer be aroused by healthy, uh, uh, you know, sexual interactions with women, they have to get into all kinds of weird LARPing and stuff. Well, yeah, and actually, we can we can trace that back all the way to a well, the the, the very idea of pornography is taking something that is good that is created by God as a good thing, as a holy thing, and commercializing it, turning it into something that is far from its intended purposes. And then exactly as, as you said there, what happens with pornography is not only does it, do you start run into, running into problems with young men with erectile dysfunction, but you also end up with pornography that becomes progressively more and more and more extreme because you can't get the same hit out of the stuff that you used to. You get you get inured to it, so you got to find something more extreme to push you. 
And this is this has got consequences, not just in terms of pornography, but in terms of human trafficking um, in all levels of abuse and so on. If you read, uh, I've read um, uh, accounts by people who've left the porn industry of the level of abuse that they take in the industry uh, where um, they are more or less required to do things they never signed on for, you know, or never work again. You know, so this this forces them into all of these kinds of things, which then leads many of them to be drug addicts and things like that as a way of numbing themselves to what they've got to do. You know, it's the same kind of spiral. But where does it begin? It begins with taking something good that God's created and starting to use it in a different way, focused on really the aesthetic. Uh, an aesthetic to avoid from uh, separate separate from morality. Yeah, and in this case, it, it would be the, an aesthetic of pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. It takes it takes things that again aimed for aimed for good and flourishing and and ultimately fulfillment in in communion with God and each other, and distorts them. I mean, it's similar to to early Romans, right? When we turn to the creaturely rather than the manifest glory of God, which should evoke the right. Um, attitude of reception of the gift character, everything in gratitude and worship, right? And then turning to other things for the gift they are rather than the 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 um, means towards my gratification, um, we, we start to pervert that whole that whole order. I mean, this is why idolatry ends up where you know with all of this because once we eclipse, the manifest beauty of God and how it radiates the whole of creation. Therefore, something dark comes in and distorts all of that, to which Romans later says our natural uses become unnatural. And and so look what happens there. Uh, interesting thing maybe to throw in here, of course, is um, th th on the one hand, because the world is fallen and broken, um, that does not mean the glory of God or the beauty of God has been eclipsed or never doesn't get through. But obviously, we know that Satan manifests himself as an angel of light, right? Presents himself as beautiful. Uh, it, it kind of, and so it isn't always in that hideous and ugly that we would first look, even though we know that that's telling us something about the consequence. But it usually is captivated and wrapped in in something that that appears beautiful to us in our fallen state. So moral purification or sanctification. Um, has with it for Christians the ability to begin to see distortions of beauty that are really aimed towards these perverse ends rather than actually genuine aspects of it. And then last point, um, Protestantism has wrestled with this um, because, it, of course, with Luther and the theology of the cross, he wanted at his worst moments to not see any kind of worldly beauty and divine beauty connected at all other than read through this the hideousness of 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 its judgment um and Kierkegaard I think uh, you know I think his solution took kind of Luther's worst aspects in the wrong direction um but you did start to have Protestants uh kind of reintegrate it back into a fuller theology I mean we see some of that with Calvin we see um, that with Jonathan Edwards of course who recaptures beauty it later Karl Barth will do it as well but they had a lot to overcome and they never quite were able to to balance theology of the cross and theology of glory um, and and I think that that you know it's it's ripe time for for Christians to kind of retrieve this especially evangelicals 
and really be clear on what an evangelical understanding of divine beauty and its significance is, because there are distortions of it everywhere. Yeah, sometimes you get the impression, particularly with some of these sort of young, woke evangelicals, that uh, something isn't authentic if it isn't ugly, you know, when we're talking about the arts, that the art that they produce. Now, uh, I, I actually wanted to go from here into um, a discussion of literary art, um, and particularly the Lord of the Rings. Now, there are a number of ways I could have gotten to this. Um, I, I could have, for example, returned to one of my favorite topics, enchantment and disenchantment and reenchantment. You know, there are a lot of ways that you can get here. But I think going at it from this aesthetic idea that you were, that McIntyre talked about, where you look at beauty and you look at the world and you view it exclusively through the, the lens, if you will, of what affirms you and your dignity and your outlook and your, you know, your interests, your desires, your tastes, all of that sort of thing. And you make that sort of the final arbiter of meaning and beauty and truth. Well, I think we've got a good example of this in the uh, Tolkien Society's current lineup of speakers for their conference at Summer Seminar. Now, Tolkien, just as a quick review, Tolkien was a devout Roman Catholic. He put a boatload of traditional Catholicism into the Lord of the Rings in different ways. Lembus represents the Eucharist, the bread of life. Galadriel is a stand-in for Mary. Key dates throughout the um, throughout the trilogy uh, correspond to critical dates within the Catholic Church's liturgical calendar, and so on. He is a very conservative, traditional Catholic. The list of speakers for the summer seminar for the Tolkien Society includes the following. Cordelia Logsdon, speaking on Gondor in Transition, a brief introduction to transgender realities in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Claire Moore, The Problem of Pain, Portraying Physical Disability in the Fantasy of J.R.R. Tolkien. V. Elizabeth King, The Burnt Hand Teaches Most About Fire, Applying Traumatic Stress and Ecological Frameworks to the Narratives of Displacement and Resettlement Across Cultures in Tolkien's Middle-Earth. Now, now that, one, that one in particular is a ugly <laughs> title. <laughs> I mean, is it possible for academics to write beautiful prose? Uh, maybe not. Uh, at least if these people are, maybe they need to read a little more Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it reminds me of, of Calvin and Hobbes uh, writing a paper on um, transrelational something or another in Dick and Jane. Um, <laughs> and his conclusion was, Cal uh, academia, here I come. Um, okay, but, but it gets better. Christopher Vaccaro, pardoning Saruman? The Queer in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Oh, jeez. Sultana Raza, projecting Indian myths, culture, and history onto Tolkien's worlds. You know, and so on. I mean, we can keep going on and on. The Invisible Other, Tolkien's Dwarf woman, Women and the Feminine Lack. Um, <laughs> um, who, who said comedy has been done for? <laughs> yeah, I mean... 
I, I have had questions about Tolkien's dwarf women, but uh, you know, this, this, this is just uh, what, it, what, it dem- what it demonstrates is that th- these people are, uh, uh, you know, ideologically hostile to uh, Tolkien's vision. Yeah. And, and they're just trying um, to use him for their own ends. Yeah. What, one more title. Quote, something mighty queer destabilizing cis-hetero-amatonormativity in the works of Tolkien. <laughs> now, just think about we, how, we, how incongruous we, that is. Yeah, we can, we can sort of keep going. But, you know, he, here we're, we're back to all issues we've talked about before. Um, you know, does authorial intent at all matter? Was what Tolkien was actually trying to do, is that at all relevant? Yeah, they they wouldn't think so. I mean, they think he is not. There is no agency really for these people. Um, he is a, he is the he is the expression of a set of forces um, and privileges, and he is basically manifesting them, and and in some ways, um, doing violence to us by being a person that has had the position and the forces he has that have excluded others. So these people are trying to find places at which to uh, unpack all that. Um, of course, they, what you see is they're creating their own mythological worlds, um, ungrounded in reality. And, and I, as I always say to them, nothing more than expressing the set of forces that have made them come up with what they've done. So they're not telling us anything. They're just basically sharing their set of forces because they don't like Tolkien's set of forces. That's what it becomes reduced to. Yeah. Well, you know, here's where I, I would bring in the enchantment, disenchantment, re-enchantment uh, idea. You know, the world has lost, as we said in the the enchantment thing a year and a half ago or whenever it was, the world sort of lost its magic. And Tolkien's prose is incredibly powerful. It is beautiful writing, and it is incredibly powerful in its presentation of a re-enchanted world, a world that people look at and are attracted to. Yeah. So it could become a vehicle through which a true re-enchantment can occur. But the problem is people encounter beauty, I think, genuinely in Tolkien's writing. This is where the aesthetics comes back in. They encounter beauty there, but they are not content with the beauty that is given them. They have to instrumentalize it for their causes and in the process twist and distort everything that he's doing. Yeah, which I think yeah. is an indication, as I as I noted a little while back, when I with my beautiful illustration of the Krispy Kreme donut, of their moral uh, sickness. In other words, th- they don't have the ability to apprehend and receive and delight in the beauty that is presented to them. They uh, simply yeah. want to uh, uh, dissect it, re sort of uh, you know configure it. And then instrumentalize it in a very much the way that Saruman would. You know, Saruman, that was all, mm-hmm. that, was, that was Saruman's agenda, you know, project. So they, they're trying to do to Tolkien yeah. what Saruman would do to Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's perfectly accurate. You know, the, the white is a starting point. It can be broken into all different colors and things like that. It can be broken into a rainbow. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> 
There was something, yeah. there was something uh, you know, beautifully prescient about that illustration, but he's also, Tolkien, I think he's pointing back to Newton's uh, experiments with optics. I think, you know, the breaking of the light, I think he's very subtly saying something about the entire project uh, of instrumentalizing everything and sort of making it serve us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think that, I mean, one of the things, I mean, you know, I, I kind of... Um, you can almost look at it from from the position of of um, both sadness, but also joy. Is the fact that I mean the, the transcendental aspects of what Tolkien is up to, just like the way the whole creation manifests the glory of God, no matter how much evil tries to suffocate it. Um, you know that's why we're condemned for that matter because it does get through. Um, they can't dismantle it. Um, what they show is they can't see it <laughs> and they can't fathom it. And if they see it, maybe let me rephrase that. They see it, but they can't fathom it. It's too bright. They need to bring it back into the ugly world that they're familiar with. And they think somehow they're progressing along um, some kind of, of, of analysis that's going to lead to some kind of something. We never get a clear, clear picture of what that is. Equity, I guess, is, has replaced aesthetic and beauty and all the rest. Um, but it, 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 equity at what cost, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, really, that, that, that's the I, big I question. <laughs> I, I would analyze it a little bit differently. I think it's that they see something that is genuinely good and beautiful but they cannot, if they accept it at face value, if they accept it at the values that Tolkien himself put in it, it would challenge them to change. It yeah. would challenge them to be different. It would challenge them to, well, at the core of their what they have adopted as their concept of their identity. Yeah. And so they've got to take this thing that they like, they love, they enjoy, because they see in it beauty. And they've got to reform it in their own image or reinterpret it in their own image to allow space for themselves and to to lay claim to it, even though it militates against everything that they stand for. But nonetheless, the power of it is such, the appeal of it is such, even to them, that they, they, they feel like they've got to do something with it to make it fit their worldview. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think it also... Uh, tie this particular, you know, uh, approach to Tolkien in particular ties into uh, Tolkien's status in, you know, communist countries. I, I, if I recall correctly, um, he was banned uh, in, you know, behind the Iron Curtain in many places. And uh, for the very reasons, you know, he was considered reactionary and so forth. Now, of course, they were narrowly focused in on, um, you know, economics and, you know, the concerns of, of classical Marxists. But the fact that he was uh, s- sort of demonstrating that there was something beautiful to an age in the past that has been lost completely calls into question the entire Marxist narrative about, you know, the direction of history and, and, and so forth. Anytime you can, you can, you know, get across to somebody the idea that something valuable was lost it's a it, it challenges the whole you know history you knows on our side you know stuff. It's yeah. it's interesting you, you you mentioned that because um, Russian filmmaker uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, um, who was uh, Orthodox 
Christian in his kind of vision, but he had to. He was trying to communicate film under the pressures of of Marxism, of course, and in Russia. And so, one of the things you notice about his works, which a lot of people find infuriating, is that they will just take a camera and and just film nature for for a long period of time. Um, but what he ended up doing is being being able to communicate the rich beauty and spiritual the spiritually transcendent nature of being. Um, without having to say anything that would fall into the hands of the script readers. And so, so they had to actually enter into a, con a place they couldn't, couldn't engage because they weren't qualified to do it. Um, one of the things he did, if he used to have, um, he used to try to show transcendent sometimes by, by having someone almost astral project, um, not because he was promoting astral projection, but it was the way in which he was communicating the material the material can actually still exhibit the spiritual. It, 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 it can't outrun it. And it is fascinating because it doesn't matter how much they tried to pressure it. So eventually they had to throw Tarkovsky out or he had, he ran to France or something. So they still could see um, like a work with Tolkien, they could still see through a story, something about it that just exposes, um, exposes them and they don't like it. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that Tolkien was actually very popular in the Soviet Union, no matter how much they tried to ban him. <laughs> um, one of the, the two observations here, one of the papers titles that I didn't read for this summer's Tolkien Society is Hidden Visions, Iconographies of Alterity in Soviet Bloc Illustrations for the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so, you know, it is popular. I mean, you've got these illustrations out there. Uh, it right. was popular. And the first attempt to do a live action Tolkien film was done in Russia. Hmm. Um, and I haven't seen it, but from what I understand, it's the kind of thing that, well, low budget doesn't quite get there in terms <laughs> of production values. But um, but again, it was it was popular enough that as soon as there was an opportunity to do it, these people cobbled something together to try to film the story. Hmm. So, I mean, however much it may have been banned, this is one of the problems with banning books. Whenever you ban books, you make them more popular. That's right. Um, it, um, it actually seems to have had quite, quite a number of people were attracted to it in, in the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. So... Um, yeah, so the, uh, the, I, I guess the point of all of this for me is, first of all, the idea, you know, going back right to the beginning, that there is, you know, beauty is not just in the eyes of the beholder. There is a such thing as objective beauty that, um, as uh, von Hilde, um, Hildebrand argues, recognizing beauty and recognizing what is not beautiful uh, is actually a moral issue. Um, and then we've, from there, we ended up exploring all these various ways that that gets distorted. Um, but um, yeah, so, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, getting back to literary criticism, I think, uh, you know, what is a literary critic attempting to do if a literary critic is, you know, doing criticism in the mode that we're encouraging? Well, I think one of the things that a, that a critic can do is kind of comb out things that are in a text that are, you know, related to the transcendentals, you know, obviously truth and goodness, but also beauty. 
it's helping people see something that perhaps they 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 would have missed otherwise you know so like when i think about my my uh you know reflections on bombadil you know many people uh you know the bombadil haters out there uh they can't see the point uh in his presence in the story and so my work as a as a critic was intended to help bring to the service some things that perhaps they were unaware of in terms of the larger setting of of bombadil and you know sort of the the world of Middle Earth, but also, you know, the, the setting of Bombadil within the sort of the, the history of Western thought and what are some things uh, that are going on with Bombadil that people would miss if they weren't aware of certain debates, uh, controversies related to, well, not just aesthetics, but even uh, related to poly- polity and pol- politics and, you know, uh, you know, even science and how it's practiced. Uh, that uh, I could help people see because, you know, I was aware of these things and people uh, who dismissed Bombadil's uh, importance, uh, you know, would miss if they, did, they weren't aware of the things that Tolkien was very so, I think, deftly and, and artfully addressing through, through the character of Bombadil. So I think that, you know, is a, is a form of literary criticism that's kind of not just in keeping with this, you know, larger uh, metaphysical vision, but also in keeping with the idea that, you know, the intentions of the author uh, in terms of what he's written or she's written are important. Uh, Now, it doesn't mean that you limit yourself to those things, because one of the things I think that characterizes a truly great work is uh, you'll be bringing in things to the work that you don't even fully appreciate yourself and someone else can help you see. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so you'll have authors sometimes who will be told, oh, this is what this m- reminded me of. And the author will say, wow, that's right. It does. <laughs> yeah. Almost as though the author himself or herself is surprised, uh, at, at mm-hmm. what's in when it is or her own work. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose the other part of it is that for me, I'm just going back to some of these topics, you know, in- inserting, uh, queer theory into the Lord of the Rings, which is at total odds with Tolkien's entire vision, his entire worldview. Uh, it seems to me that the, the the problem there is that you are undermining not just the story as it's given, but all of the sources and roots and everything else that are part of that story. Right. Um, Tolkien could not have cr- created Middle Earth without being who he was. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, because sadly, they they like to read everything backwards. I mean, that's their whole. That's the whole point of these theories. Is it's all about it's all about capturing all that that had had nothing really um, has nothing really to do with Tolkien and his concerns and his interests, or even receiving him as a gift in any strong way. I'm not saying some people don't appreciate it, but I'm just saying the the theoret the, the kind of critical theory and these approaches in literary theory are really about unmasking you know, and, and they're looking for, you know, and, you know, again, they never exercise it on their own concepts and terminology or anything else, because they'll find out as creatures, they're just as invented, they're just as uh, invested in the same kind of things any human being is. And if we can't see beyond those reductions, um, then we are truly deluded, which I think we are. But one of the other things is, is something about, you know, beauty itself. and, And I think this is something that Tolkien is communicating, whether they get it or not, is that first and foremost, it is it, it it's something that we don't construct, right? 
it's prior to our ability to construct everything. We, we undergo it. We, we suffer a pathos. If it's another person, um, we see their beauty. Their beauty is not something that I've constructed. It's, it's first, mm-hmm. you know, it's a beholding of and then a beholding from. And so in that reception, therefore, my, my, my being impacted by it and my expressing something in relationship to it then comes about. And so this conflicts with the way all this critical theory and, and stuff actually understands any kind of interpretation. They, they think everything is constructed all the way down. So there really isn't a beauty in which to read Tolkien in light of, uh, not even to when he's saying you should do it, you know, you should do this. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the way, particularly the Lord of the Rings, this is an Ezra in the Silmarillion, the elves come across, by the time you get to them in Middle-earth, they've sort of learned their lessons in the Lord of the Rings, and they come across as being all about goodness and beauty and light. You have Mordor, which is all about darkness and ugliness and evil, and then they situate the characters between the two. And that, that, I think, is one of the things that gives it, gives it its power. But if you don't have this concept of beauty and goodness and so on, and therefore, in Tolkien's case, it would be a therefore of evil and ugliness, um, you can't really construct the story. You know, if you have, um, you know, Tolkien is very much a, a patriarchal writer. He, he believes in hierarchy, all of these kinds of things. To miss that is to, well, you know, we're, we're back to Derrida and uh, deconstructionism. Derrida yeah. believed that uh, language had embedded in it uh, implicit hierarchies. The language that we use mm-hmm. uh, included hierarchies which were um, consciously or unconsciously were there to preserve the existing power structures in society. So the whole point of deconstructionism is to uncover these hierarchies and subvert them. So what they're actually doing here is yeah. applying a you know a deconstruction to the Lord of the Rings, even though it's intellectually yeah. that's not in favor so much anymore. Yeah, the problem with those folks is if you've ever tried to get anything done with them, it uh, is hopeless. They just uh, it's it just conversation never ends. Nothing ever gets prioritized. Nothing ever gets done. I I have a background in you know social you know, justice and, you know, activism, uh, uh, you know, uh, and uh, I, it was just exasperating, you know, to, to actually try to, to, to accomplish stuff with those folks. Um, because, you know, they, you know, they, they never, they never build anything of, them, of their own, you know, they're always just tearing down other stuff and never pr- actually producing anything that works. Well, yeah, and it's also, if you ever have the misfortune of attempting to read them, it's no accent, accident that Roger Scruton talks about them inventing the nonsense machine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Because well, the, the prose is absolutely impenetrable. Oh, yeah, there's some of the worst. Anyway, we, we, we should probably start bringing this in for a landing here. We've been flying high and talking for a while about transcendentals <laughs> and, and things like that. Is there anything that uh, you want to say, uh, Tom, as we wrap things up? Um, uh, pr- probably just end with, from my end with the, the, um, kind of continuous project we have as Christians, uh, maybe I use task as a better word, a uh, project is too invested in, in modernity. <laughs> uh, the task we have of, um, on the one hand, um, 
weighing the way in which these transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness are being um, engaged at our time and then evaluating them without shying away from um, the riches that we have. And I think Tolkien is an example of someone who um, was already aware with some of these theories before they took off. I mean, Lewis too. They, they, they were aware of the ideas of criticism that would eventually become um, um, deconstruction and the like. Um, but they boldly pressed on, um, not not shying away from from these these things like beauty, and uh, and that's something we shouldn't do. Become intimidated by these beauty haters, if you will. That's right. That's right. Yeah, good points, Glenn. Do you anything anything you want to say as we wrap up? Yeah, I I think that one of the things that's worth thinking about um, is approaching it from the negative side. I mean, I think we need to be pursuing beauty and truth and goodness, but it's also, I think, worthwhile to consider the ways in which our culture devalues these, Mm. you know, so you get to the idea of complete relativism, um, in terms of goodness and truth and beauty, all three, um, you get, um, consumeristic or utilitarian approaches. You get these sort of, um, idiosyncratic things that are designed to promote our own particular political ideologies, you know, that, that take things out there and view them exclusively in terms of, of um, what our particular current set of issues are, and then either critique them on the basis of that or distort them to make them align with that. So we, we should be aware, I think, of all of these different tendencies as we're looking at how people approach these questions, particularly a beauty here, but also it applies to truth and goodness as well. Right, right. Well, anyway, that's a, that's a good place to end. Uh, those are great thoughts, Glenn. Hey, uh, anyway, uh, we want you to know as a listener to the Theology Podcast that uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate the fact that you've listened all the way to the end of the show. <laughs> And uh, we we uh, we think you're beautiful for that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we 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 are very pleased that uh, so many folks listen to each episode. We're also pleased that people have rated us on iTunes and elsewhere, uh, and given us some 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 nice things to, uh, that they've said about us. And uh, right now, we're working on a couple of things. Uh, one of those things is. Uh, the Fight Laugh Feast conference coming up in Nashville in, I believe, it's September. Um, and, uh, so we're hopeful that we can be there. I know that they would like us to do a live show, uh, at that time, uh, in Nashville. So we're working a little bit on that. And we're also working on, uh, bringing the, the podcast out into the Pacific Northwest. There are some things in the works with regard to that. And as we know more, we'll let you know, but we do know this, that it'll be toward the end of October and into early November. That's kind of the time frame in which that would happen. We still have to get all the the uh, details worked out, but that's that's the time frame that we're thinking about. Anyway, enough of that. Thanks again for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.